Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. I am psyched because we have here in the studio Rory K. Smith and Alison Rod, which generally makes for a very good podcast, and we are privileged to be joined on the phone by Mr. Matt Hughes. Now, in a minute, we'll be talking about Pardew and Stamford Bridge sounding empty and all that good stuff. But first, let's head to the Northwest for the Manchester Derby. Fernando finding Yaya Torre. Aldi Maria slid in and made no contact. Clichy pulls it back. And Aguero scores. Finally, the breakthrough for Manchester City with Kun Aguero's 12th goal of the season. And the resistance of the 10 men is finally breached. Alison, I want to get this out of the way first. This sort of bizarre interpretation afterwards, or, or these, these two different interpretations. I encountered a lot of United fans who uh, talk about how there's obvious progress. Yeah, they lost, and, and Van Gaal made the point too. They took on Chelsea and, and, and City, the, the two best teams in, in the Premier League, arguably, and, and the games are really, really close. And I'm wondering, would it be churlish to point out to him that they got a point from the Chelsea game at home because of an improbable last-ditch winner. And there were at least three penalties that City should have had. I mean, they could have absolutely been toasted in this game. Yeah, you can you could probably make good cases for both scenarios. Did they ride their luck in both matches or are there signs that they're improving? I think what the signs are of is that they're keeping problems at Old Trafford. It's usually just as another injury, yet another injury. And a, a reshuffling of the, a defence, which is has been all season slightly peculiar they didn't they didn't buckle under that at um, the Etihad and I think if you wanted to look at the optimistic things you would point to the spirit and the energy of defending and uh, yes Smalling took that slightly too far but him aside I thought a a peculiar back line uh, defended reasonably well there was there was optimism in the way they played there was energy so if pushed I would say I would come out of that if I was wanting to see signs of of encouragement under Van Gaal that that yeah there is there is something going on there he is they're not getting panicky there's no sense of hesitancy there's no self-doubt whatever he's saying to them they, they they seem to believe in themselves there was that run from Rooney which you know, it's the sort of run you get from a player playing in a team that are top of the league and are in three competitions and believe they can do anything. There is, there is good spirit there for a team that are underperforming for the for the outlay they've put in. You're talking about the run where he uh, he toasted uh, uh, he company, company and out. then uh, and then he for some well, reason well no yeah he, he, he should have he should have shot first time but but apart from the final second of that move it was it was brimming with brio, Matt. 
We finished the game with an unusual back four of, of Valencia, Paddy McNair, Michael Carrick, and uh, and, and Luke Shaw, and, and it's weird and it's and it's unusual. The fact that they defended well, uh, according to Allison, when I think there might be some doubt about that when they did when they were supposed to have conceded three penalties and red card. But does it mean anything when in fact it's not going to be these guys playing when United actually become good, uh, or, or or is it? I think Allison's right to an extent. They they showed good spirit and the signs of Van Aal's building something, but they're still a long way away from where they have been in the past and where they would aspire to be. I, I guess the difference is last year, the big games against City and Liverpool, they got absolutely hammered. This year, they've been more competitive. So I guess that is a sign of of some progress in difficult circumstances. There were games earlier this year that United lost when I thought they actually played relatively well. Mm. And now this one, it's like, oh, look, we only lost 1-0 and we didn't capitulate at the end. And I'm like, yeah, but Michael Oliver had an absolute stinker. Those those were three absolute stonewall penalties. Rojo could have been sent off as well. Um, what if you give the penalty, you have to send him off? Well, in theory, although you're supposed to give them, I mean, I, I don't know if he didn't see them or if he saw them and he just judged them differently or, or, or whatever. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, if everything, if, if things had gone against you, you, you could have... You could have easily lost this game 3-4-0 and, and maybe you would have shown the same fight back and the same reaction at the end, but we wouldn't be talking about it because of the, the heavy scoreline. I think it's interesting with, with United, the kind of perspective that uh, it, it's, it's a slightly misleading statistic, this idea that they've had the worst, a worse start than, than, than they did under Moyes. But just as, I don't know, just as with Moyes, it, it felt like there was a, a groundswell of opinion that there was no progress being made. With Van Gaal, you, you do wonder whether there's people think there's more progress being made than there actually is. Do they have they have only got thirteen points from ten games, which is not which is not very good. They're fortunate to an extent that apart from Chelsea and Southampton, everybody is waiting for them. So even I mean I think are they now they're ten points behind City, but Liverpool and Arsenal they're not they're not sort of miles and miles ahead. Spurs are around the same the same mark as, as Liverpool, United and Everton. I think that's helping. But I don't know, you just wonder, United start, for, for everything that's been dressed up as, as signs of progress, are they really there? I don't know. They've got better players, they, have the, they spent more money than any team has ever spent in one transfer window, and the, re- the reward is, is 13 points from 10 games. In terms of the defence, is there any reason why the defence should be as, you know, as bad now as it was last year? Not really. I know they've had injuries, but they're just... I, I think people want to see progress because it is Van Gaal. Whether that progress is actually there, I'm not sure. Matt, is, is, is there something at work here where, you know, last year, because it was David Moyes, and we, you know, who was highly respected and so on, but isn't, isn't Van Gaal, we tended not to buy into this idea that, you know, everything will be fine. I mean, he came out after the game, and Van Gaal says, oh, yes, you know, we're, we're really close to where we want to be, everything's going to be okay. You want to believe him because he has a track record and he's done it in the past. Is, is, is that part of the, is, is this part of the value added that a Van Hal brings that he can say stuff like that and you buy into that? Well, he's got instant credibility, which is what David Moyes really struggled for. I think the context of last year is, is crucial to understanding the current mood around United. It cannot be as, as bad as that. So there's just such a desire and desperation for, for things to be to improve, and that explains the positivity. I mean, I've only seen him in the flesh since he came back when he there was the 2-2 draw at the Hawthorns and he, he even sits there and says yes 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 I know I'm arrogant yes I know I'm big-headed but I'm always right and the <laughs> Mourinho aside and he has a different brand of arrogance um 
you sort of think, well, I can picture what it's like in the dressing room at Old Trafford. You know, he's just got this amazing belief in what he's mm. doing and the project he's going to unfold that is going to unfold there. And that, it, I think that's why a lot of people are buying into this being um, not a dreadful season, really. And there are signs of progress because of, it, it is because of the personality of the manager. But it's, it's a bit dangerous, though, because, I mean, he's 63 years old now and... Situations like this, you benefit from the confidence in everything, and then all of a sudden, when that confidence fails, you—I mean—it it tends to happen with dramatic effect. I mean, when you know that—that's where you get the emperor has no clothes syndrome. If at some point the, the, these things don't come together, well, yeah, but fo- football is perception, isn't it? I think that's what maybe the, the, the really interesting thing about United is: results are broadly similar. There are as many pros and cons to their play under Van Gaal as there were under Moyes. They're, they're playing a nicer style, but they, they still look kind of disjointed and the, the bits don't really fit together. But because it's Van Gaal, everyone thinks, well, well there, is, there must be a master plan. Whereas with Moyes, everyone thought, well, there, there can't be a master plan, we're not sure. So Van Gaal has that initial... Yeah, as Alison says, I think sedu- seduced is the right word. He's trying to seduce people into thinking he will get it right. And don't get me wrong, he may get it right. It may well be that there is this upward curve. But I'm not quite sure whether... Whether the things that we're seeing there is you know signs for it's positive signs. It's not like under under Moyes there were never any sort of there was ne- never any kind of spirit or determination to get back into it. Do you know what I mean? It just seems a bit. There was a there was a I think it was the QPR game I listened to on the radio when they won four 0 against a terrible team, and I think it was Jonathan Pierce doing the commentary for Five Live. They scored one and they they obviously hadn't been playing that well. You can never quite tell from the radio, and he started talking about oh the you know the the barrage is coming, the floodgates have opened, blah 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 blah. And you sort of think that would happen to no other team than this United this season. That there was this assumption that oh United scored once now they will just fly away. And they didn't. QPR had a couple of chances to get back into it, and eventually they got they got four. And I just feel as though people are kind of seeing what they want to see in United. But at it's the not it's not that illogical, Rory. It's not like Van Hal's in charge of Burnley, and he's got seven million pounds worth of players. He has an array of some of it's quite amazing talent. He does, yeah, at absolutely. His disposal. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got that, plus a manager who has a track record mm-hmm. and a manager who uh, has arrogance, self belief, and uh, some sort of charisma, and clearly is taking the dressing room with him. Yes, we all know the defence. There are problems, so not all of his own making. Although I liked the interview with Rummenigge when he says he just doesn't care about the defence. Mm. That isn't so ridiculous that most of us have bought into it. I don't no, not it's ridiculous. It, I just think it's interesting. Apart from Gab. No, I I, I just look at this and I, I was I, I watched the uh, highlights again last night and they showed United's chances, and I may be forgetting something, but there was the the Di Maria shot, which brought a, a very good save from from Hart. There was Rooney not making company who still somehow managed to get an eight in most newspapers and <laughs> there was this guy there was a great chance there was Fellaini running away from company and getting that header in which comes off his shoulder I'm thinking myself, I mean is, is there another great chance that I'm forgetting here I don't think so, I don't think so. Is, is, was there some other great creation here and this was against a city team who were really low on confidence and who I don't think I mean they played particularly well or rather they were very effective uh, at first, and they created, and then and they should have had those penalties. Then, after the red card, it looked to me like they were sort of like, "Oh no, let's not mess this up," and they just kept retreating. and And United, to their credit, kept kept fighting. The mitigating circumstances, which is simply ignoring that they had ten men for an hour, and generally it's done half the season. It's a new team. The sort of heart and soul was looked out the club last year. To expect them to suddenly be. Of their to the title, no, 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 no. Hang on. Sorry if I jump in here, Matt. I don't expect them to be charging to this title. I'm saying in this specific game, where were all the wonderful chances that they created? 
except for the except for the, the the ones that I mentioned, one off the shoulder, one Rooney not, not getting a shot off, and, and then the Di Maria chance, which which I thought was an excellent chance. The point is, when they went to City last year, they were absolutely annihilated. They were down to ten men for an hour, and they managed to be remain competitive, which, given where they've been recently, is some progress. Right, I'm assuming nobody wants to uh, defend or even talk about Chris Smalling, other than to say he was, as, as Van Hal put it, very honestly, was stupid. No, that's yeah. a fairly, fairly succinct explanation. <laughs> I am curious about one thing with the guy. I, I've never met him, but I've seen him interviewed and. He was presented as somebody who's actually very clever and He's meant was, to be, yeah. studious yeah. and everything. Was it just the, the adrenaline in, in the game? I mean, you suppose so, right? Like, I think Smalling, I can't remember whether, whether Ollie Kay or James Ducker wrote it this morning. I think Smalling struggles when, when he's in a high-stakes game. I think, his, I think his nerve goes. And it, you wonder whether, this is sort of cold psychology, but you wonder whether it's because of his, his footballing background that you know, he came up through the lower leads from Mason United to Fulham. He had this relatively quick jump from playing non-league football to playing Premier League reserve team football then being at Manchester United and you wonder whether he, he hasn't quite got the mental fortitude I guess to cope with those really high pressure situations yeah there's something about when you're bought by a big club and they say it's okay you can stay a bit longer at the club you're at because we know you're not quite ready I think that might mess with your head slightly talking about City it was presented as as, as some kind of, of of crisis and it was kind of three pretty bad performances in a row, or certainly two bad results, three bad results in a row from CSK Moscow to the League Cup, where they did put out a reasonable side, and, and of course in between the, the West Ham loss. Matt, did they convince you of anything? Well, I never really thought they were in the midst, in the midst of a huge crisis. Equally, I've not been that impressed by, by what I've seen so far, and if Aguero wasn't playing so well, that they'd be even worse off. He really is, everyone talks about Torre, but he really is for City to me and when he was injured last year probably why they made such hard work of winning the league again it's all about perspective and perception I think Pellegrini pointed out they had the same points this time last season there were six points off the off the pace and went on to win the league the difference is there were six six points behind an Arsenal team that in my view and in the view of most people was kind of waiting to sort of not quite implode but certainly weren't going to run away with the league Whereas this year they're up against uh, what looked to me like an outstanding Chelsea team, and I don't think they're going to let them back in. I want to you guys on, on Aguero because I was just wondering who the best player in the Premier League is, and and I kind of feel like because of his injuries, because he's got great players around him at City, he's somebody I always thought of as being in the conversation. But perhaps, and also of course in years past, we had Luis Suarez and Gareth Bale and the other guys who bolted to La Liga. But is Aguero there or thereabouts, as you people like to say? Yeah, he is. But my, you, I, was, I thought this like last night, actually. What, uh, you wonder whether, is he the, the Real Madrid signing for next summer? Because they've been after him for an awfully long time. There's nobody else out there who you really look at and think, yeah, he's the one. He's got 10 or, 10 or 11 already, Aguero. I think his presence might unsettle Benzema, so I'm not sure. Me. Yeah, but Perez has got an uneasy relationship with Benzema. But yeah, Aguero, it's hard to see past him as the best player in the league at the moment. Final word on Manchester United. I looked at the game and I thought Marwan Fellaini, much derided, was going to get dumped or would have been dumped on uh, on your mate Rafa in uh, Napoli if he'd not got himself injured at the end. He actually was a big, important physical presence. And and in a game in which Di Maria was, was less than his brilliant self, I thought he was he provided real added value. 
when he came on against West Brom, he, he had an immediate aerial impact and then he dropped deep and it all seemed didn't make any sense at all why you would do that. I mean, he was following instructions play, from you, Van Howe. Yeah, but that's what I mean. I don't, I mean, the, the reintegration seemed a bit complicated. He does what he does well. The trouble is because they're so biased in terms of attack, attackers, he probably will get used occasionally to play deeper, where I, I think he's much less effective. He, he needs to be harassing defenders and do, doing well at set pieces and just making a nuisance of himself but not spitting obviously we don't want him doing that yeah well, well you, you brought it up you want to talk about it I, I it is interesting with with hdtv and, and and vines and everything that everything's recorded Husey. i think even 10 years ago we probably wouldn't have been having the social media debate about whether he was spitting or indeed the, the Joe Hart face-to-face thing with with Oliver, I thought was interesting too. Because if you look at it, it looks it looks bad. But then, if you look at the reaction immediately, if you look at the whole, the whole sort of sequence, if you look at him immediately before and immediately after, and Oliver's reaction, it it casts in a very different light. It's not some aggressive headbutt on the referee. That's the problem with taking a snapshot, isn't it? Because I suspect Joe Hart, he is a very polite man and I suspect his words at the moment he was leaning into the referee were probably not overly aggressive and the referee did not feel intimidated and there was no actual contact. It's just that if you if you if you get a frame and you freeze it, it can look worse than it is. I don't I mean Joe Hart doesn't go around headbutting referees. That's a ridiculous accusation. Dumbledore on the overlap. Zoko again. Moreno is there. But so too is Perez. The young Spaniard scores for the second week running. But that's a shocker for Alberto Moreno. He's gifted Newcastle the lead. Right, moving on to Newcastle and Liverpool. Now, for some reason at St. James Park, and I noticed this in the Liverpool game, I didn't notice this previously, the penalty spots and the center circle aren't filled in. There's just kind of like an, an outline of a, of a circle. I have to say, maybe this is normal and other people have told me that, well, you don't need to fill them in and people have joked, obviously, that it's Ashley saving money and whatever else. <laughs> I, I don't remember seeing this elsewhere. Have you? No. And I, I God, I have to admit, I didn't notice. It didn't, I didn't notice that they weren't filled in. Isn't that awful? Did anybody else notice it? Truthfully, No. no. All right. Well, go back and look at it. Hughie, you, you, you can direct people, and no doubt, to all sorts of illegal but streaming But it sounds sites. illegal to me. When I took my course, you wouldn't have got away with an really? empty circle of anything. Does the referee fill the circle in himself, or does the, no. ground, the ground staff no. do that, presumably? No. The ground staff do it. It was just, it was just a bizarre does thing. Does the referee have to like, inspect he it does, to make he it does. sure it's He does. He has yeah. to inspect the posts and that the nets yeah, are in properly and there's no post. sharp edges That's and there's no post, yeah. bottle tops on the pitch La-de-da. people are talking about an Alan Pardew revival and everything's fine again it's not really all fine again is it Husey? it's not well the club isn't fine I think Pardew is a decent manager working under almost impossible circumstances Newcastle were never as bad as their own fans were painting nor are they suddenly going to surge at the table and qualify for Europe again it's not really the, the answer, but he's not the problem either. The problem is the ownership. That's not going to change. So I think while it might be unpalatable for the fans in the short term, they're probably better off sticking with Pardew and maybe reviewing again in, in, in the summer. He will keep them in the Premier League. I wouldn't worry about that. Bigger question about what is, what is the point of Newcastle for? What do they exist for? They're, they're not going to win anything. They're probably not going to get relegated. They don't like cup competitions, it seems. So you can understand why there's this sort of perpetual misery surrounding the place. I'm, I'm going to 
play devil's advocate again, and I'll, I'll wear my Mike Ashley hat, and I'll go and say, you know what? You go back to the owners you had before I came here, and you go look at how they ran the club, and feel free to Google them, and Mallorca, and brothels, and all this stuff, and they were from Newcastle. So I come from the outside. I limit your losses. I make this club sustainable, or, or, or close to sustainable. I get you promoted from the championship. We don't spend absurd amounts of money. You guys don't like me, but the fact of the matter is, I don't want to go and, 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 and lose 50 million a year trying to compete to, to, be, to become Tottenham or something. So enjoy it. You guys all say you're loyal fans and you love showing up. I give you a Premier League team that you can show up and support every week. And look, there's even kids from the youth team like Tyler Dummett and stuff like that that you can go and, and enjoy watching. So what's the problem? As long as they finish above Sunderland, there's no problem at all for most Newcastle fans, I'd have thought. I think in sort of a cold logic sense, you're probably right that he, he the job he's done in terms of turning the club into into a sustainable model is is quite admirable. There's certain things he's he's done that I think you can understand why Newcastle fans get upset. I think the main that there's a PR issue that makes it sound kind of um, <laughs> irrelevant. There's an issue that Ashley basically gives the the impression he doesn't he doesn't really care what what the fans think, which I would suggest is not a great way to endear yourself to a local populace. And it's not just Newcastle this applies to, as Hughesy says, that group of teams who are not going to win anything. Whether they care about cups or not is, I think, to an extent irrelevant. Because I think fans now are conditioned not to care about the cups. They don't associate the cups with being successful. That they would enjoy it momentarily. I don't think it would buy manager a manager a huge amount of time anywhere. But what, so what is the point? What are you going for? They and that is an issue that I think is true across football. Is it realistic that an owner would sit and he goes to most games at the moment? It seems he, he would sit there. And boo the manager? I mean, he's, <laughs> what do you expect him to do? No, he either sticks with the manager or he doesn't. And if he's going to stick with the manager, and we usually say that's a good thing, I, I think it's completely logical that um, a, an owner should be expected to sack a manager just because there's a few banners and or, or very well-organised protests Bevan. saying don't... No, 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 it's not, it's not the Pardew issue that I think is the, is the disconnect between Ashley and the fans. It's things like the renaming of St James's Park... The, the Wonga deal, all of that. He's he's obviously a, a brilliant. But the placards man. weren't about Wonga; they were about Pardew. No, I know, but the, the Newcastle fans seem to be manif- the, the the discontent with the ownership. I guess because, and I don't want to speak on behalf of Newcastle fans, it's because they know the owners going nowhere, so the the discontent manifests itself as dislike for the manager. They, I think they know the the owner is the issue, but I, yeah, Ashley just generally gives the impression that he doesn't really care what the f- he doesn't care if he's popular or not, and I don't think that's not that he should do things to be popular, but. I think you can understand why Newcastle fans have taken against him so much, despite the fact that financially, yeah, they're in a better position than they were. Hughes, isn't it remarkable how at this uh, Liverpool... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Dominated sports section. We've managed to avoid talking about Liverpool thus far, and I want to keep that going just as long as I can. <laughs> I, I thought it was a pretty horrible game, and then I'll show all my bias. There was the Daryl Yamat on Mario Balotelli tackle, and I kind of thought, had that tackle been on, say, Sergio Aguero, might it have been treated differently by the referee? I don't think so. I think he made two poor decisions. I thought that Sissoko's foul on Joe Allen was even worse. Proper, studs up, high, leg breaker, potential leg breaker. And I think both of them should have been shown red cards. Referees make mistakes. Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with the identity of, of the victim. Especially as Aguero did not have two clear penalties against him given. Right, but strange analogy. I'm just saying, strange analogy. On a weekend when Aguero was right, hacked down and hacked down and didn't get anything. I watched this game on, on television. I didn't like the commentary, so I flipped over to another feed where there are other commentators. And then I flipped over to a third feed, and um, I didn't like any of it, frankly. <laughs> um, but I, I also maybe it was just because it was just such a such an awful an awful. Well, game. you were looking for a commentator who was going to big it up and say this was the best Newcastle Liverpool game he'd ever seen. Actually, it was the opposite. It was one specific commentator who kept telling me what a wonderful game this was when it was actually really, really turgid. Liverpool were terrible. I don't think New- I mean, Newcastle I thought deserved to win, but I didn't think they were much better. What's the problem with with Liverpool, Doctor Smith? How long we got? <laughs> we'll try. Let's try to be. Let's try to be brief. Can we right. agree that maybe this week the new centre forward wasn't the problem on his own? Or the new centre forward has not been the problem. He's not covered himself in glory, Balotelli. But the new centre forward is distracting a lot from the main issues. The problems are the defence isn't really good. Rodgers can't organise a defence. The midfield has stopped pressing and tackling, which means the defence is exposed. The goalkeeper is not really good. There is a complete disconnect between how Rodgers wants to play football and the players he now has. His substitutions are uninspired. He can't produce a tactical switch. He's facing a very exacting challenge that he has to match, basically. that There are problems at every level with Liverpool. The injury to storage hasn't helped particularly. I got in trouble for saying this the other day. I can't remember a team that was as exciting as Liverpool were last season becoming so boring overnight as they have. I realise the loss of Suarez and storage is a factor in that, but then surely it's Rodgers' job as a manager to ensure that if you do have those those two losses for various reasons, that the, that the style, the philosophy that he talks about is maintained. And I think that I'm not I'm not going to say one way or the other whether he can he can meet the challenge, but it is a it's a massive challenge for him now to prove that he is the manager that he was described as, and that you get the impression he thinks he is. Cusy, it sounds to me like he's blaming Brendan Rodgers. Is 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 Rory being sizest here? <laughs> <laughs> he's the manager. So, ultimately, the book does stop with him in one of his defence. The way things have panned out this season, his, his job could scarcely have been more difficult, really. He's got huge expectations from last year. Weighed against that, he's got the additional challenge of the Champions League. He's lost one of the best players in the world. Your main strikers barely play through injury. You've got lots of new signings, haven't really gelled. I mean, as a manager, challenges don't get much more difficult frankly, and, and he, he struggled. It's not really a surprise that he struggled. I remember last season in March saying something 
like I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool won the league this season and went outside the top four. The coming one, are you? This one so far, it looks like I've nearly nearly proved right. Then it's right. sort of almost so back to basics and go back to where they were two years ago and start trying and build something. Use our Anfield as a you know fortress. Use that dreadful cliche and um, you know go game by game instead of deluding themselves that they're a big team, a top four team, a top two team like they were last year. Because at the moment they're not. All right, easy one one sentence uh, answer here, Husey. If Liverpool finish outside the top four and they don't reach the quarterfinals of the Champions League and there are no more major injuries and the injuries injured guys come back but show no evident signs of progress. Do you look for a new manager? No, of course not. Would it be insane to to, to fire this man if uh, given all the money that's been spent and whatever else, they show no signs of, of progress this year and they finish outside the top four? I don't think it would be unreasonable to fire him. Aha, we have a difference of opinion here. The, the leap to managing Liverpool, he got quite lucky and now it's tricky. Now there's stuff to do. He's not coping very well I don't think I mean the fact that he keeps putting Joe Allen in midfield who, who else other than him thinks Joe Allen is a top midfielder who fits into what Liverpool need at the, the moment who, does he have anybody I mean you guys would know Liverpool better than me but apart from Lucas who has his issues and, and the, the giant midfielder we saw in the, in the League Cup you know what I'm talking about mm. right mm. Um, who's, his name escapes me Jordan right something I can't remember his surname now um, does he have too many other options and no, but then that's uh, that is an issue. That's Chan's another, injured, right? That is another issue. No, no he's Chan's not back. injured, and Chan's he looks back. he looks good to me. He's got Chan was injured. Lots more he was energy. Injured. I can I just say I, I think I fall between two stools here. I think that Rogers is struggling to with with what, as Hughesy says quite rightly, is a big challenge. I think it would be whether it's silly or not to sack him in, in the summer is irrelevant. They will not sack him in the summer. I'd be staggered if they, if if FSG, having bought into him so completely, sacked him in the summer. I think that's probably a good thing. He should get that fourth season. I suppose, to, to see whether last year was the flute or this year was the flute. And then at the end of that season, when we know that, then that's when he makes a decision. I think that's fair. He'd have had four years. Chelsea beat QPR, but it's very flat. And by the way, shout out to Charlie Austin, who I thought was, was magnificent with his, little, with his little clever flick for the goal. But Mourinho talked about the team being flat afterwards. And, and then all of a sudden he comes out with the fact that it's, it's the fault of Stanford Bridge, not as in the physical place, but he said it felt empty because um, there's a lack of atmosphere and the fans aren't noisy. And having been to Stanford Bridge several times this season for league games against supposedly less fancy opposition, um, like Leicester and, and whatnot, I can see where he's coming from. Chelsea struggled and they didn't get a massive lift from the crowd. All that said, A, is this a fair criticism? Are you comfortable with a a manager basically calling out his own fans, Husey? Oh uh, yeah, because it's a good talking point. It's a great headline, and it happens to be true. What amused me is the sort of reaction from Chelsea fans, uh, which is sort of almost been to to ignore this criticism. Can you imagine the reaction if Rafa had said this a couple of years ago? That he'd have needed Rory as his 24-hour security man. He's right, and he's wrong. I mean, the, the atmosphere at Stamford Bridge is rarely great, particularly not against. On, on afternoon games against teams they expect to beat. There's a sense of entitlement. They expect to turn up and be entertained and, and to win, and largely they are. I say it's not just a Chelsea issue. You go to Arsenal for a routine league game, and the atmosphere is, if anything, worse, largely because they get very nervous if they're not winning us by half-time. So is it, is it a thing? Is it, I mean, you mentioned two clubs there. You're a Yorkshireman yourself. Is it a whole sort of soft southern London issue? 
No, because the best atmosphere, or among the best atmospheres in London, is at West Ham. Sorry, number three. Uh, I'm not, I was going to say Tottenham and QPR. Always, pretty much always noisy. Might be a classic. You do tend to get wealthier fans at Chelsea and Arsenal when you do elsewhere in the capital. Well, that doesn't um, that doesn't work, does it? Because sometimes at Stamford Bridge, the atmosphere is rocking. It's fantastic, pretty, and it's the same pretty, it's the, 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 the same the, the same wealth bracket of fans. And they're presumably they're probably slightly richer when it's a big game and the ticket prices go up, and it's harder to get hold of a ticket, so you pay the touts more money to get in. It's it's probably a lot about the fact that Chelsea don't don't play that way. They don't. They're quite contained a lot of the time. They do just enough, and there's a sense that. Well, if they get a lead, they're quite happy just to go through the motions and play five out of ten football till they need to do something different. And that doesn't inspire a crowd to make any noise. I think this is an issue that goes way beyond Chelsea, style of football, uh, Arsenal, class of fans, London. It's every, pretty much every... There's no ground in the Premier League where the atmosphere is consistently really good. So the two best are Stoke and West Brom, I think. Palace, Crystal Palace, Palace is the good. Best. Palace is good. Stoke has got much worse. If you, look, if you go, go to the Britannia now, it's much quieter than it was four or five years ago. I think it's it's partly to do with the cost of tickets. I think people generally feel that if you've paid 30, 40, 50 quid, you're more likely to turn up and expect that they should that the team in front of you that you've paid to watch, that much money to watch, should be entertaining you rather than might entertain you, which is what, what the expectation is if it's cheaper. I think that we watch so much football now that it's much harder to get excited about things. I think we're all so aware of, of what brilliant football looks like that if it's not brilliant, then we kind of go, oh, this is really good. I think we, we're much more easily bored. I think people are more easily distracted in life in general. I think the football probably... the smartphones in the stadium and good connectivity. Things like that probably don't help, yeah. There was that banner at PSV, wasn't there, where it said... Where, when they put Wi-Fi in the stadium and the fans made it pretty clear they didn't want Wi-Fi in the stadium, they weren't there to check their emails. Um, I think that's a huge factor. I think there's loads and loads of stuff, and it's more—it's not just about how football's changed. I think it's partly about how society's changed. Yeah, you're right. There's, it's called the nativity play thing, where you, you you go along as the parent to watch your little one in their first ever production, and you don't watch it, you film it. And there is a sense that we're all doing two things at once and thinking about how we're going to react to something rather than what is really needed at a football match is to give yourself over to the, the give yourself to it completely it's it's one of those mad wonderful parts of your life where you just start screaming for no reason and that's what used to make football so amazing was that you'd get grown men trudging in from a hard week work and they just let go in a legitimate way right, but total I mean, passion know, but no one has total passion anymore because they are too busy doing other stuff there's one the pits closed and everything this whole like I, I kind of I mean whenever as, as, as yeah the pits didn't a, have Wi-Fi no that's fine but I'm saying as, as a as a foreigner looking at this I, I am struck I, I have noticed I mean I, I attended my first game and it was at Stanford Bridge or sorry it wasn't it was at Sellers Park but in, in 1989 while people say that you know that was supposedly some kind of golden era certainly was a lot noisier. It certainly was a lot edgier. Um, I kind of liked it. Maybe I liked it at the time because I was a teenager. Uh, I do feel that, you know, a lot of grounds at Old Trafford, for example, with all the, the health and safety laws, you can't stand up, you can't sit down, you can't do this, you mustn't, you know, that plays into it. The fact that the Premier League fans are, on average, the old the ones who actually go to games are, are the oldest in Europe, you know, that happens. I mean, once you get in your 40s, unless you're some kind of goon, you know, you, you tend to be, uh, do a little more sitting in your hands. Uh, the fact that it's difficult for, for, for teenagers and, you know, people in their early 20s who you would imagine would be the loudest passionate people to, to buy tickets because they're not going to go with mom and dad and many of them can't afford to go on their own. All this stuff, I think, contributes to it. Um, but I also wonder, 
if there isn't also a fact that from a, a bottom line perspective, the people who own the game and try to make a buck off it really don't mind this situation. I think they. Sh- I don't know whether they do or not, but they should because I think part of the the Premier League selling point abroad has always been the the backdrop, and the backdrop is the the ultra modern stadiums. You watch a game in Italy, the stadiums generally look a bit crumbly. Napoli always have that bottom tier empty, and it makes everything look terrible. Right. The top tier's got fifty thousand people in it, yeah, but no, the bottom yeah, tier is terrible. Age old thing. Um, I think that's hugely important to the way the Premier League looks. The fact that it, something looks important, if something looks important, people will. But on television, that it is but on on television, though, you don't notice it as much. I mean, I I, I watched. And no, that's true. That is true. I watched the Chelsea QPR game on on TV, and I could hear the QPR fans a little bit. I didn't notice any particular problem with with Stamford Bridge the way maybe I might have noticed if I was there. Do you know what the, the most telling thing is actually? And the, the Chelsea supporters trust made this point that away supports are continually excellent. Yeah, Chelsea's away support is fantastic. United I will make an opinion. I, I will point something out in this, which maybe not a lot of people know. So at Stamford Bridge, the away supporters used to sit in the in the East Stand, uh, which was basically it's the stand behind sort of the, the the two manager dugouts. That was interesting because it meant that they were really quite close to the Matthew Harding stand, which is where Chelsea's noisier, more raucous support tends to sit. So you had this incredible sort of back and forth going on all the time, which I think really added to the atmosphere. And then it was felt the Chelsea manager at the time felt that having the away fans basically right in the east end meant that they were influencing calls when the ball went out of play and, and influencing the you know they were the, the referee could hear them the linesman could hear them and whatever so he had them moved to where they are now which like at most grounds this is basically it's a little slice in the corner the manager who did that was one jose Mourinho back in 2005 I, i'm wondering if that plays into it a little bit that if if you want your own fans to react, you know they have to to some degree be able to engage the away fans. And when the, the loudest fans are sitting at opposite ends of the stadium, they can barely hear each other. I think that is actually a factor, but maybe not for the reason that you that, that you mean. I think that there is a factor that fans now take more pleasure in the the tension and the tribalism than in actually watching the football. I think that is, but that's not just true of Chelsea. I think it happens a, a lot. But of you would think that would make them noisier. No, I'm not sure. It do, I'm not sure it does. I think it makes it makes them noisier in general in life, but I'm not sure it does in the course of an of an average Premier League game. You could also the other thing we should probably mention is the standard of the football. It's time for some quick hits. Southampton win again, sneaking past Hull with a bit of good fortune. Allison, if the season began on August 30th, the way God intended, they'd be top of the league. We expect them to regress to some sort of mean. Are you seeing any signs that this is happening? No. I think I was the only journalist in the country who said they might have a top four moment this season. And I'm really pleased to see them there. And I just love the way Ronald Koeman's reacted to it. Sort of in gradual stages, he's saying it's, you know, week by week, he gives a little more away, saying, yeah, you know, we're thinking about the Champions League. Good on them. Hope they get there. That would be interesting. It takes them a while, but Arsenal eventually beat up Burnley and their boss, Sean Dyche, says his team belong to a different market right now. Husey, you get to choose. You can either wax lyrical about Alexis Sanchez, whom Match of the Day compared to Luis Suarez, or you can tell us whether Burnley will ever be in the same market as Arsenal. No, they won't. And I think you're talking about the, the quality of players you can buy, which is why they're bottom of the league and Arsenal at the other end. I love Sanchez. He's a top player, but I think people are getting a little bit carried away on the back of a few goals against Burnley and Sunderland. The match of the day poll in which he sort of was viewed as a better player than Eden Hazard, I thought was slightly odd and compared to Suarez, I think is even stranger. 
Charlie Austin scores again for QPR, who nearly hit the jackpot against Chelsea. Mourinho wasn't happy after the game, as we've discussed. But Rory, what did the visitors and Uncle Harry do right? Uh, they worked hard. They they were well organised. They and they they took a chance when it became clear that Chelsea couldn't quite finish them off. I think it wasn't so much that QPR did a huge amount right. They did all they did everything they had to do. Uh, Chelsea couldn't finish them off. They they couldn't quite find that second goal that would would have killed it. And then QPR were always going to have one moment. And they 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 actually I think came out of that game probably with more hope than they went into it. I think it could be the sort of performance that kickstarts their season a little bit. Wonder when the Austin for England chants start up. Oli K reported last week that the European Clubs Association will ask FIFA to consider a spring World Cup for Qatar 2022, which would mean the season wrapping up by early April at the latest. Alison, are you okay with that? Is it, as Oli suggests, uh, the least bad option out of a bunch of horrid ones? Well, duh, yes. Um, duh, Oli. <laughs> UEFA are going for January. FIFA have opted for November. Premier League put their head in the sand. So, yeah, April, it's a compromise, but it's the best one. I mean, and, and is it so clever to come up with an idea that just means uh, the minimum amount of disruption to the richest leagues in the world? No, it's not. Swansea go down to 10 men against Everton, but nevertheless, Roberto Martinez's crew are held. Husey, we all praise Roberto, and this summer the club finally spent money too. So why are they stuck in mid-table? And they're stuck there. I think they'll finish top, top six, seven. As expected, I think they've had some tough fixtures. They've got the Europa League to contend with, and it's a very unpredictable competitive league. So I don't think you should sack him either yet, Gab. <laughs> Thank you. It's so unpredictable, of course, that as I love reminding everybody, seven of the top eight have uh, finished, have been the same in each of the last six seasons. Spurs conjure up a smash and grab at Aston Villa after Christian Benteke gets himself sent off and Harry Kane pulls off some last-ditch heroics. Rory, your thoughts on the red card and whether Kane should be getting some love from Uncle Roy. Also, while you're at it, tell me about why Harry Kane should be called up, but Charlie Austin shouldn't. Uh, because Harry Kane plays for a more high-profile club, and that, as we all know, is the most important thing when considering England call-ups. Uh, I am uncomfortable with the image of Harry Kane getting some love from Uncle Roy. That sounds very upsetting. Is he good enough to play for England? Probably not. You're so not. narrow-minded. Probably not. Um, he's obviously in a rich vein of form. He gives the fans something. He lifts the fans. He's got, he runs around a lot. He's, he's not. Harry Kane is not some sort of world-class striker in the making. But he's he's kind of doing the business and I think in the context where Soldado and Adebayor aren't aren't scoring it is weird that Pochettino won't start him Gab we had El Clasico last week and now now this weekend it was De Classica someone's written something in German that I I can't pronounce what what happened in the game between Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund (laughs) thank you Uh, what happened is Borussia Dortmund uh, in an absolute rut they set up to basically defend no centre forward uh, say we're going to hit you on the counter and and they did for uh, in the first half through Marco Royce, but the problem with Bayern Munich is they just have so many weapons, and even when Mario Götze has a stinker and Müller and Lewandowski aren't really getting it together, they, they just kept growing as the game as the game went on, and a really entertaining match, and then Frank Ribéry comes in at the end and basically wraps it up, helping set up Lewandowski, and then uh, winning the penalty, uh, which Aryan Robin uh, converts. Right, any other business? Yeah. I felt slightly uncomfortable watching Match of the Day 2 with Brad Friedel talking about Spurs and he was being a little critical of individuals, Spurs individuals and questioning Pochettino a little, which is fantastic telly and the BBC must think fantastic. But I, 
if I was Pochettino, I would be angry that one of my players was doing that. And I'm wondering if anyone agrees with me that it, all it did for a, a viewer was make them feel slightly torn and uncomfortable. And should he be doing it? Um, my, my, my Any Other Business is about Western Sydney Wanderers. Yes! Who won the Asian Champions League at the weekend, beating Al-Hilal, the Saudi powerhouse. Uh, in what was the, the the first Australian club ever to win the Asian Champions League, which is a much more important competition than people think it is. Extremely lucrative, and it's watched by millions and millions of people across Asia, which is a continent that has quite a few people on it. Uh, but most importantly, apart from the fact that Tony Popovich, Crystal Palace legend, is the um, is the Western Sydney Wanderers manager, they've only been around for three years, It's this is the moment when I think we have to cross Australia off the list of countries who don't like football. We now, that debate of when will football ever catch on in Australia, like we have it about America, now has to stop, full stop. It has basically dwindled, but it is now over. The Australians like football. Can we, yeah, that's my point. And will the proof it, of that be when Popovich says no to Crystal Palace when they ask him to be their new manager? You, I, I don't know if he would say no, but that would be an extremely... Yeah, I'd put money on that happening at some point. Right, that's all we've got time for this week. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes and Player FM, please do so immediately. I'm going to thank my guests today, but first I'm going to thank again Dave McGuire and Gary Jacob, who uh, really saved our bacon last weekend. Um, you're, you're writing something down. Are you writing down, Dave? What are you writing down? Like to edit that out because he's modest. You can edit the bit about. Are you going to decide on Gary Jacobs? We have to be modest as well. Yeah, yeah, he will. He will. That's, that's the problem, with people. With Red hair. Anyway, thanks to my uh, guest today, the outstanding Matt Hughes on his way for a tete-a-tete with Arsene Wenger, uh, Rory K. Smith here in the studio, and, of course, Alison Rudd. Check out thetimes.co.uk. If you're a member, you get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. And if you're not a member yet, for just one pound, uh, you can take our digital trial today. One pound, less than it costs to use the loo in some fancy train stations in some fancy countries. All you need to do is search Timesport online. Till next week, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Hi, I'm Tim Montgomery, the presenter of another Times podcast from the opinion pages called Did You Read? It's the perfect weekly snapshot of some of the best writing in the newspaper. Find out more by heading to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and search Did You Read to subscribe on iTunes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.